0: True House Stories, we're starting off the new year strong and tall. One of the most handsomest guys I know out of the European dance music scene. He has taught a generation. He's mentored a lot of DJs himself. He's played so many fantastic parties from the disco era to the r and dance, new wave, dance-orientated rock, hip-hop. This guy touches all, all, and I say all genres of music. His career is going back to 1982, where it was official, where he had one of the first biggest mixes from Forest, Rock the Boat. Come on, everybody. Come on, Rock the Boat. Come on, come on, baby. Rock the Boat. You now, saying he did the record international, not just in this country, but all through Europe, a chart placement record. He has gold discs on his wall for remixes he's touched. He's revered from other professional remixers and DJs. As a guy that they go to when they need, you know, the Ben Lieber and touch to hear his thoughts on a record, or well, actually for him to touch your record, remix it. His name is synonymous. You put the name on it, you stamp it, you know it's going to do well. It's got Ben's heart in it. It's got his mind, his thoughts, his process of how he does dance music, how he feels it needs to be done. He's done so many great remixes. He's touched major groups like Salt and Pepper. Help them go over ground. But I'm going to let him tell you all that because there's a lot of records in between that he's he's been able to touch and bless. And you know, like all of us, sometimes you do things not knowing how big it's going to become and next thing you know, it's like, wow, I didn't expect that and your life changes. And Ben Lieberman's had those changing experiences too. So I'd like to welcome Mr. Ben Lieberman master mixer, DJ, remixer, producer, everything, all in one. He is our man. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Happy New Year, bro. And thank you for joining us. And if I had to cry, I would have went like this.
1: (sighs) (laughs) Thank you very much, man. Thank you very much. (laughs) Great to be here. Great to be part of your your, uh, series and uh, very much uh, looking forward to uh, whatever you're wanting to ask me. Well, Right now, it looks like you're in the Star
0: Trek lair. Can you tell us where you are at this point? Because we see Star Wars, and I know you're a big Star Wars fan. I heard Trekkie sounds before. Give us that, where you are right now, before we get to the first question.
1: So, I am uh, in the studio, which is in my home. And uh, my home is uh, located uh, in Canada, near uh, the town of Calgary. So, I'm in my studio at the moment. And uh, being a huge nerd... Um, obviously um there are certain stuff that influenced me a lot of it uh, being uh, sci-fi big fan of uh, star wars star trek uh, sci-fi and all that comes with it uh, and uh yeah. yeah so i surround myself with uh, the stuff uh, i like and uh, love it love
0: it looks like you have the you have you have leonard nimoy in the back and captain Aurora. You know, working behind, but it's an awesome looking place. And thank you. And you're actually in Canada. And I know it's cold already up there. I know
1: it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too bad. It's not too bad. But just saying, uh, we have snow pile ups of uh, over three feet. So. Uh, oh, okay. That's great. So you're getting yeah. snow trips. <laughs> you know, we have dogs and we have two runs for the dogs. And in one of the runs, the snow is so high that the fences just disappeared. <laughs> just disappear below the snow. Go right yeah, because the dogs would just walk over the snow and be
0: gone. <laughs> cool, cool. But um, all right, Mr. Ben, here we go. Get comfortable. So, as everyone knows, we always like to go back in time and I'd like to start with all our artists and ask this main question, and ask from every artist that steps to this show, is how does music
1: find a young. Uh, For me, it was the combination of music and really all the technology that comes with it. Uh, I mean, I got a cassette recorder when I was 12 years old and having the cassette recorder and figuring out how that thing worked and how I could record in the best possible way on that little thing was as interesting to me as the music. And obviously, with the connection to technology, uh, you know, my uh, interest would go to stuff like Kraftwerk, uh Jean-Michel Jarre, um, Giorgio Broder, uh, because they also used a lot of technology in their music. And being a nerd, uh, you know, way before anybody knew what the word meant. Um, yeah, that was my uh, passion, both of it: music and uh, whatever it took. Speakers. Uh, equipment so it's a a combined interest that got me started so like every young you know
0: kid going to grade school should say did you were you forced to learn an instrument you know musically speaking on the musical training part of it
1: I wish I were I wish I were because uh over the years I have you know I'm I'm self-taught uh all the music parts I needed to do I figured out what needed to be done, and uh, figured out what the first voice would be, the second voice, the third voice. Uh, but I wish I would have been forced uh, to have uh, some uh, some some music background way from the beginning, because it would have made everything so much easier and uh, quicker. To I don't know, you know, by the time you uh, get into uh, music theory, then suddenly everything makes sense, and then you think back to mixes you you've done like decades ago where you're like I had so much trouble figuring this out now I know why so uh so none of that um I did fill about with uh, keyboards and um as the keyboard is my main input device for uh, uh, for making all my productions um, I can make it work obviously as history has shown but I couldn't play a solo to save my life so so basically, you learn
0: just being self-taught. You understood how to start playing chords, and understanding the difference between something being out of key, being yeah. within key, all that yeah. stuff, right?
1: Very fortunate that uh, I do have a, a good ear, so I uh, I could hear what would work and what wouldn't work. But don't ask me back then. Don't ask me why. You know, I wouldn't know why. I could tell you this works and that doesn't work. But I could not explain like, OK, this is because, you know, it's, it's the wrong kind of chord or it's uh, there's a, a wrong note in the, there or whatever. I couldn't explain it. But uh, luckily, I have a, a good set of ears and uh, big ones as well. So, <laughs> That's good. That's good. You laugh, you laugh, man. But when I was four years old. <laughs> These ears were already at this size. So, uh, oh, so you uh, grew into ear? You grew into and, the ears? Oh,
0: absolutely. Yes. That's <laughs> I love about True House Stories. We learned everything about the artist, you know, including him growing into those professional ears that he has for listening. Now, of course, let's talk about, you know, what was going on during those days musically around you. You know, pay, I always ask all the artists. To paint us a picture, what was it like growing up at that time? What music were you hearing? What was radio? Were you listening to radio? What was your influences? Because it's always a, a, a DNA for all of us. What brought you to this place, you know?
1: Yes. So um, being in school and for the first time having uh, the opportunity to go to a library, which also uh, had uh, a lot of vinyl. Well, um, that's when I got interested. Well, I, that's when I really got access to uh, stuff like uh, Kraftwerk, uh, Isao Tomita, um, uh, Jean-Michel Jarre, um, and all that kind of stuff. So back in those days, I wasn't even uh, interested in, uh, you know, all the, the real soul stuff, like the drifters and that kind of stuff. Because back then I was really into uh, anything that's electronic so um, that that came that became my uh, DNA and uh, from there it just grew on and that also then determined uh, the kind of music I liked and the kind of stuff I listened to and uh, what was on the radio you know what was on the radio was? the stuff which is on the radio. I must, must say that um, Holland is, uh, has always been a country which is very open to whatever's going on in so many other countries. So we did get everything which was going on, obviously, in Holland, but also in Germany, England, United States. And uh, later when I uh, got into DJing, all the imports were available. And uh, everything was available in, in the Netherlands. And um, we had a couple of good uh, radio stations, uh, and one of them had, for example, a show called the Super Clean Dream Machine, which only focused on uh, electronically generated music, and I was a big fan.
0: Back in the 70s into the 80s, I should say, I remember hearing, you know, because I interviewed Earl Young from the Tramps, and he had mentioned to me that the Tramps, half of the Tramps band went to Holland because they said there was a big disco scene in Holland, really big, and there was lots of shows for people to perform at. Um, yes. Yep. Were you yep. seeing all that? Like, what was going on around you? Were you hearing about all that stuff? Was that being played on the radio, the big disco craze that was happening in America? Was that
1: happening on your side of the uh, ocean? Well, the funny thing is that, um, you know, everybody, everybody knows about the, disc, the, the big disco craze going on in the United States, and everybody also knows about how it was killed off in the United States. And uh, I must say that never happened in Holland. There has never, never, ever been a, a negative ring to the word disco in Holland. I mean, I've even seen uh, other people in your in your show telling like, uh, you know, disco became a kind of a, a dirty word. Honestly, that never happened in the Netherlands. And... Um, get to the we'll get to the point where you know my my mix show started as well in in holland but um uh that never happened so disco and going to the disco that was just the thing and uh no negative vibe no negative vibe uh, towards uh, uh the whole gay scene the whole black scene or whatever It just didn't happen, the whole disco is dead thing in Holland. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, lived through that whole era. And, uh, for example, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, Gino Socio, if he would have lived in Holland, he would have never quit his career. He would still be making records today because the whole disco is dead thing, it just never happened.
0: Yeah, because we do know that Europe in a whole kept disco going. They just changed the name. This became dance music, electro music,
1: and all that wonderful stuff along the way. But here... Yeah, the thing you're saying is it changed its name, but the thing is, in Holland, it didn't change the name. So you had your disco, you had the house, you had the acids. you still have the disco, you had the alternatives, you had the whatever came next, and you still have the disco. It In Holland, it did not change the name because it never... It never got a bad ring, uh, disco. It was never associated to a, a negative connotation, no. right? No, just didn't happen. No. So uh, you know why that happened here? Well, I've heard a couple of stories. I know that uh, the guys who set it off uh, from the radio station, who kind of initiated the disco dead thing, and also you know the, the thing they did in the football stadium. But I've also heard from a pretty reliable source that there was uh, the whole Piola thing going on in the United States. And uh, when you wanted to have your record played on the radio, you basically have to pay. And then along came uh, Gloria Gaynor, and she had a huge, huge hit, which could not be stopped by anything, whilst it wasn't played on the radio. And it was a big hit. I think it was Never Gonna Say Goodbye. And it became a big hit through the discotheques. And then... On top of people, you know, maybe getting nervous about that scene, it kind of looked like the radio people, the people that were earning money off of that Piola system, kind of got a scare and kind of thought like, hey, what the hell is this? If these discotheques are now uh, making records uh, without them paying us to play them on the radio. That's going to impact our income. We can't have that. So they kind of... Went along with that whole spiel and kind of demonized the whole uh, disco scene and said that uh, the rock artists weren't, uh, you know, they weren't comfortable with it and uh, all the gay people and all the black people and it's all, uh, and it's all, you know, crazy stuff going on and you don't want to know what's going on and disco is just this evil thing and we got to kill it off. And they did kill it off. And by the time they killed it off, MTV was on the stage, and they never got their payola scheme back the way it was before disco kicked in. That's what I heard, and I can very much believe it. It's somewhat like that. Yeah, it happened that way. Could you
0: imagine having a Lolita Holloway record called Hit and Run sell a quarter million singles without one radio play? Imagine yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. The power of yeah. the DJ from the clubs. And, and, you know, uh, I, I, we won't get into politics, but people following crazy notions, apparently it's something from every age. And back then, people bought into it. People bought into that idea. And before you knew it, disco was dead. And before you knew, you knew it, Gino Sancho was no longer making tracks, which is a bad thing. Yeah. But
0: don't forget also, in this country, on my side of the world, Whenever they smell the idea of making money, people who had never had a dream or a care to ever get involved in something that was a romantic movement, off born off Woodstock, and now you know free people found their place in disco and having free love and everything else that goes along with it—the drugs, the rock and roll, you know the whole thing—they they couldn't control it. They couldn't control it. So they, when they can't control it, what do they do? They destroy it. Yes. It's not controlled. So thank you for the history lesson, Mr. Ben. Now we want to ask you on your history trip. Since the disco thing was happening, were there some go-to DJs before you became the DJ that you were checking out and and, and or inspiring you as a muse before you became
1: DJ Ben Liebrand? You know? Um, I, the DJ thing actually happened again through that combination of loving the music and loving uh, the equipment side of it, because uh, we were going out in a club in, in, in Holland, where the club was also open on Sundays and it was open from three in the afternoon until after midnight. But obviously the DJ would have a break around about lunchtime. At that time, the guy behind the bar stepped in between rinsing the glasses just drop the needle uh, into whatever was on the turntable, whatever he could grab. And he was just damaging stuff. He was just, it was such a careless way of handling the equipment that I said, shall I play these two hours? Then at least, you know, nobody's going to wreck the styluses. That's the reason why I got behind the turntables back then, because I just couldn't see that the stuff was being wrecked by this, you know, the, this, this guy from behind the bar. That's what started my DJ career. That's what started me actually being behind the turntables in a, in a club which I frequented uh, so long so I knew exactly what the hits were and I could just step in and seamlessly pick up where, you know, the guy before me left off. And after that first tryout, I got the Friday evening in that club. So that's me at the very start. And then a couple of years later, I'm talking about 1978. And a couple of years later, in 1980, I heard a guy playing pop music in a beautiful club called Queen. It's actually not spelled Queen. It's kind of spelled Queen phonetically in Dutch. So is isn't spelled like the word Queen in English. Anyways, in that club, he was playing pop music too fast. And I was like, why the hell would he play pop music so much faster? Talking about four, five, six percent back then. And... Then I noticed like, hey, this track is kind of rhythmically going into the next one. The funny thing uh, is that the DJ who was spinning there called Hype Laute, he just had recently returned from the United States. That's where he heard the beat mixing. And he was doing the beat mixing, but he was just trying. You know, he, he wasn't looking into what makes beat mixing work. He wasn't looking into BPMs and that kind of stuff. And around that same time, I started noticing these numbers on Vanguard records, and it said 118 BPM, and another one said uh, 132 BPM, and I'm like, hey, this BPM thing, what would that be? And then I got all my Vanguard records out, and it turned like, hey, the ones that are higher are faster, and the ones that are lower are slower, and I kind of figured out what those numbers meant, and only after... Found out what BPM meant, so hype louder kind of got me into mixing, and I kind of picked up where he left off. So he was very content doing the sets the way he did, and I picked up on the BPMs and started rearranging all my record boxes to BPM. And uh, yeah, you're talking 1980 when I uh, really got into mixing on to dreadful Duell. Uh, turntables so there weren't any torrents the the, the techniques um weren't weren't there yet uh, before uh, 1980 so i dj there in 1978 in 1979 uh until the place burned down basically so wait, you said those were the dual dual turntables yes dreadful i mean yeah you would... no pitch adjust right no pitch <laughs> they had it those ones had a pitch control but they were just belt driven and i mean if you looked at them fiercely if you looked at them angrily already uh, the needle would skip so like <laughs> adjusting these these mother fluffers was just what'd you do to get around that what did you do um basically um again Being the nerd, figuring out uh, how the tracks were built up and knowing when the break would come and knowing like uh, 16 bars in advance. Like, you know, if I start the record here, then I have enough time to sync it up. Uh, I'll make it a little bit faster than the one I'm going to so that it kind of speeds up and takes over and just, you know, break it a little bit, break it a little bit and just have those two or three seconds that it kind of, overtakes the other one and you're in the next track you're in the next uh, record so that was in 1978-79 wow impressive
0: brother impressive so let me say this let me ask this question since you say you know authentically you were a nerd still am Okay, so when I vision a nerd, I think of the white jacket, long three quarters, with pens, glasses, doctorish type guy. If you didn't find music, where would you have gone to? What would have been the profession of choice for you?
1: Well, the funny thing is that um, it became music, but it also became uh, visuals. So, and visuals just drew my attention just as much as uh, as music and uh getting into photoshop getting into 3d animation getting into video compositing it is all it is all uh jesus it is actually all a hobby it's all a hobby that took off and became my work and um the way i approach it i have a a craving to understand how stuff works and um i find that uh where people just dive into hardware or dive into software and, you know, it takes them where it takes them. I am very much uh, someone who really craves to discover what a certain piece of software makes it tick or a certain piece of hardware makes it tick. And that way, uh, hoping to get the most of the software I'm using and the most of the hardware I'm using. And with that knowledge, then... You can imagine that if you're really getting comfortable with your tools, then your tools kind of become uh, transparent, so to say. So you can yeah. use the software to make what you want. Software is not inhibiting you and you can use hardware to do what you want without the hardware restricting you. And that is the nerdness in me, uh, which I fully embrace and which you know uh, allows me to, to do the stuff I do. So let me share this with everyone, okay?
0: From my own experience, and then see if we can get Ben to explain it as well. I remember telling my mom and dad I wanted to DJ. And I remember them looking at me like I had three heads. They said to me, and and I said, I want to do this because I love it. No idea it would ever be a, a profession or They said to me, you're going to be like the guy on the corner playing a saxophone with a hat. I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to prove you all wrong. Anyway, I followed my career and went into the business aspects of banking and stuff. And the rest is history. And here I am talking to Ben Lieber. Ben, did you have that same conversation with mom and dad?
1: You understand (laughs) that conversation? Remember that? Do you remember it? Because I do. I was mucking about with all that equipment and by then, uh, talking about, uh, you know, I was in high school and uh, that was even before I did my first uh, DJ thing in that first thing where I took uh, took over from the guy behind the bar. And um, my dad was, uh, he, he was uh, working at the, the Dutch uh, Railway. Uh, so that was kind of a government job with all the securities that came with with it and obviously for your kids you want security so but i was just mucking about with all that music stuff and all that audio equipment and um my dad scolded me when i got my first tape deck which was a a revox uh, a77 wow good deck i got it yep i got it for uh you know back then converting the, the, the 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 dutch guilders to the dollar's Got it for about $450. I told my dad I got it for $150. And still he scolded me. Uh, why the hell would I pay so much money for a secondhand tape deck? <laughs> so he was really he was really on my case. But then I was doing the DJ thing. And, you know, I was bringing in money each and every night. I, I, uh, I came home. And um, in 1982... Um, I got my first assignments from uh, the record companies. A lot, a lot happened in 1982. And at that point, my dad kind of saw, I can see him making his money this way. And I'll tell you an anecdote. So I was working in the studio and I just know my dad as being very skeptic about this whole thing. And he comes in and he says, uh, so uh, what have you been working on this week? And I'm like, Hey, he's really uh, getting an interest in uh, what I'm doing. He's really getting interested and really, you know, he's, he's warming up to this whole thing. So I'm explaining this and I'm explaining that. I'm getting into details. No, 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 no. I mean, who have you done a project for? What's the project name? Who is it for? And where do I send the invoice? (laughs) <laughs> wow. so my dad was like okay if this is something which is going to sustain ben ben is in with his head in the music clouds all day 24 7 and he's not getting around to uh you know to the point that he sits down and he writes down writes uh, an invoice so my dad uh, did my invoicing for the longest time actually until i left home my dad would do all my financial stuff and make sure Uh, to come into the studio and to just jot down this project so much for that person and that record company, here's the address. And he would just jot down all the details and he would make sure that invoices were sent and I could actually make a living on that. So, And that was really a turning point where my dad really felt, okay, this is okay. I'm seeing now that he can make his money. He can make a living out of this. It's good and I'll help him with it.
0: So Very excellent. So you actually had your father became your book manager and account, <laughs> account book accounts for the head of accounts, basically. Yes. To make Sure. You you can go do the artistic side and we'll keep you making sure that you're well padded with all the money coming in. So <laughs> here we go. So now that you're doing what came first, Ben, was it the remix or
1: the mix show for you? It actually was the remix. And we're talking 1982, that year where a lot of stuff happened. Uh, two guys from The Limit, and they had a big hit with Say Yeah, uh, The Limit. Uh, back then they were uh, recording their first single called She So Divine, and they were hearing all the edits I was doing in the club. So in the club, um, imagine you have Human League, Don't You Want Me Baby? And if everybody knows the song and everybody knows you have the guy telling his part of the story and the second verse is the girl, you know, responding to his story. The edit I was playing in the club was the guy was saying something, the girl was answering. The guy was saying something, the girl was answering. So I made an edit where every time he said something, she did the response, respond, edited from the second verse. And that was stuff that caught people's attention. And among those people were The Limits, uh, Rob and Bernard. They were uh, in my club uh, very frequently because I was playing stuff really months before it came uh, uh, onto the radio that's how it still worked back then and they said we have a production, it's called She So Divine we have a tape, we have an instrumental version, we have uh, a bunch of outtakes uh, could you edit our 12 inch version for us I did so, the 12 inch got cut at a record company at that moment uh, in the uh, a recording studio at that record company. So they had a recording studio. They had a whole publishing thing. They had uh, the vinyl cutting and they had the actual uh, vinyl pressing factory within one building. And uh, so me doing this, me making this 12-inch version got the attention of the people that were recording uh, a production in the studio there. So within days of doing the very first 12-inch edit, I got an assignment for the second 12-inch edit. And then through the company where Rob and Bernard had their publishing, they had an idea to do a uh, production. Um, And that kind of, the first one was uh, Rock Your Baby cover version. And the second one was Rock the Boat. So uh, within that year, I had my first um, edit. Uh, another edit, then I uh, had the opportunity to do the production on first Rock Your Baby, this cover version, and then Rock the Boat, which, which uh, were both uh, performed by Forrest. Okay. Um, the people running the publishing company for Rob and Bernard were playing golf at the golf course, and their friend was Lex Harding, who was the owner and the director of Radio Veronica. And they were just playing golf, and they were saying, like... uh, uh, Lex was saying, like, we've been hearing uh, this stuff about uh, uh, DJ mixing, you know, DJ actually doing beat mixing. You know, the word beat mixing wasn't even a thing back then. But anyways... He heard about DJs not talking through records, but just rhythmically going from one track to the next. Then Robert Bernard said, Lex, you've got to hear Ben Liebrand. He just made this 12-inch edit for us. You've got to hear what he's doing because it is a trend which is really upcoming now. And uh, uh, Lex Harding gave me the opportunity to do a one-hour continuous mix show for Dutch radio. And So it was first the remix. And through that connection, through that little world, people knowing each other, before you know it, I got a call from Lex Harding uh, asking if I would be able—not if I wanted to do, but if I would be able to do this mix show. The question, "Are you able to do the mix show?" was very much connected to the thing, to the the fact that, in order to have anything on Dutch radio, it would either have to be made at their studios or by their studio technicians. So I really had to put in my homework and it really was judged by the technical people at the uh, radio broadcasting facilities if the stuff I was doing would meet the standards they required to broadcast it onto Dutch national radio. So uh, yeah, a couple of hoops and uh, I had my radio show on Dutch radio. So can you also explain the workflow in the beginning
0: for you with these edits? Um, you mentioned that, you know, you were sought after from the artists themselves, then the record labels. But what exactly was the workflow in the sense, we we heard you mention the, the Revox quarter inch machine. Was that where you were doing predominantly your stuff? Were you working in a studio with a big
1: mixing board? What was going on in those days for you? In the beginning when it was edits um, I realized that what I needed uh, would be material on studio quality. So I would request, I need five times the vocal version. I need five times the instrumental version. I need five times uh, the outtakes. And I would actually edit from what I got got from uh, the studio Onto by then uh, a Revox B77 uh, because I knew that the you know the B77 was perfectly capable to edit all this stuff, right? But it wasn't it wasn't able to record at that level. And then I found out that uh, Studio makes uh, butterfly heads, and I got butterfly heads uh, installed on my machine, which meant that on my machine I could record at the same Recording level, the same magnet magnetization level as the professional studio, and that brought me a step further, further because then I didn't need the five copies of this and that. I just needed one copy, and I could make one-to-one copies on the Revox. So that was just editing first from whatever was supplied from uh, the studio, professional quality, and then upgrading my own uh, machines to provide that same. Uh, professional quality. And a little after that came uh, a Sony system called the F1. And the F1 was a uh, digital system combining uh, AD, DA converters in combination with Betamax recorders. And then I could take whatever came from the studio in digital format, And basically the edit on tape would be one generation down from whatever was recorded in studio. So, again, you know, a, a little bit on the technical side, but uh, that, is, that is how I, uh, I, I started doing uh, things back then.
0: So with Betamax, which was actually the first, if everyone at Betamax, those in the, that are not old enough to remember this, there was a thing called VCR tape, okay? <laughs> <laughs> VCR tape became the de facto in the domestic homes of people being able to watch videos pre to this whole way of things that we stream now but there was a time when the first professional digital recorders made a tapes the size of let's say three quarter inch you know almost an inch and they were small carts and things called betamax they had an excellent hi-fi quality to be able to drop from analog onto this, and you can drop back and forth without losing generation. Uh, Some of the artists at the time, like Stevie Wonder in the early 80s, they were using this technology to help with their um, bouncing of tracks. So what Ben was doing, in essence, he's doing edits and bouncing back and forth without using any digital, any quality loss, of analog loss. Because when you if you work with analog tape and you go back and forth, the more times you bounce back and forth, the more hiss and the more sound comes back. So he was getting around it by doing this with digital pre to the digital era,
1: which was awesome. Yes. He's already nerding us through it. I love it. Love it. Show us. Oh. And here's one. So here's uh, one of those. It's like a huge dad tape. <laughs> it's like, like you know, a big tape. And I don't know if you can see it in the back, but over there in the rack behind me is still a functional uh, F1 system with the Betamax and it's still running. And it's still playing these tapes, which have been recorded back in 1984, 1983. It still works and it's amazing. So, uh, yeah. And again, um, I think that being a nerd um, very, very much helped me to be up to speed with the technology. So why is that important? Because you know, you have these opportunities in life, you have these chances that are offered to you and when that moment occurs, when you are offered a particular chance like having a show on the radio and you already know how to record that show and how to record it up to the level that they're expecting, you've already won. So that was a big big uh, advantage I had being such a nerd sure and you
0: know what you you know what that's what makes you 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 know and that's what keeps you a step ahead of others in a sense that you were always fishing for the right stuff and making sure it's called being totally prepared and i think you were i mean listening to you now i'm thinking you're pretty prepared to do the best job you made you made it. You made your best, Let's put it like this: You grabbed your best things, and you can for what you can afford too, because that technology was quite expensive in the beginning, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Betamax yeah. was very expensive, and mountain Holland people could afford that back then. So you yeah. must have been doing quite well, Mister Lieberman, to be able to afford to have a max system right in front of you.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, and uh, you know. To give you an idea, the, the, the first pieces of equipment I bought after my tape deck was uh, a URI uh, 1178 uh, compressor limiter, and uh, they're still hanging in the rack. Just yeah, the the stereo, the yeah, those
0: are the stereo versions of the 1176, everyone, URI 1176.
1: And uh, the funny thing is that uh, selling them now would probably raise more money than they cost back then. Oh, sure. Oh, God. So they're very expensive back then. And uh, another thing which I'm using was a uh, RTW 1206 peak level meter because I needed to know, I just needed to know. I needed to know what are the levels I need to record and what are the uh, professional specs and what is the standard uh, so I can make stuff in this business which will be accepted by the, the record companies I'm working for. Funny story, Um, I finished a remix I did for um, Hot Chocolate, You Sexy Thing. Um, It took a hell of a long time before I was satisfied with the end result. And When I was uh, back then, uh, you actually took the tape with you. You took a flight, you flew to London from the Netherlands. Uh, You went to the offices of uh, uh, EMI and you put it on the tape deck there and it got played. And uh, when it was played, everybody was happy with it. And then uh, I needed to have a production copy and uh, said, do you have time? Do you, are you able to go to the studio and make this production copy? So said, yeah, I would love to, because I would love to see the studio. Bentley ran the nerd. So, <laughs> yes, of course. turns out the studio where the production copy was made was Abbey Road Studios. And here is Ben Liebrand, this total, I don't know, noob, coming into uh, Abbey Road Studios. And uh, a great thing happened. Uh, The copy room, they actually had a room back then, which was just filled with tape machines and an operator, which just spent all day making production copies and copying from left to right in the copy room but the copy room was occupied so i uh, went into one of the recording studios in uh, Abbey road and uh, one of the recording studios that looks down into that space and you know jesus man the beatles have recorded here it's just it's such a iconic place and uh so they were making this tape, they were making the production copy, and they were just saying hey, this sounds nice. And they were turning up the volume in this control room, and they were just bobbing along with their heads and turning to me and giving me compliments. Hey man, this sounds great. Where did you do this? In my bedroom. And then let me let me now let me answer there. What do you
0: mean? What do you mean, mate, in your bedroom? In my bedroom. <laughs>
1: That is, that is, that is the spot where I set up all my, you know, I had my mixer, I had my turntable, I had my take deck. And at a certain point I was like, my bed in the corner is making too much, is just making too much dust on everything. So I moved my bed up to the attic. So I slept in the attic and my room, which used to be my bedroom, was just filled with equipment back then. And that's where I did this remix of You Sexy Thing. And uh, people at Abbey Road Studios ask, asking me, which studio did you do that? Yeah. I just fell silent and I just said, I did this in my own studio. And I, <laughs> I couldn't even bring myself admitting like, yeah, my own studio is just my bedroom. And I've got a couple of speakers and I try to get the stuff best stuff together I can. But in the end, it's just my bedroom. So, uh, yeah so physically speaking right now from what i'm understanding
0: at this period of your life in the professional recording business it sounds like you're retouching editing post opposed to actually mixing it where i'm actually hearing you touching the faders and changing or am i wrong to think this from what i'm hearing here's the thing here's the thing Excuse so you can explain it a little more a little clearer
1: in uh in doing these remixes um you know, one way is going into a very expensive studio and hoping at the end of the day that uh, inspiration was there and uh, that you came up with something which really melded with the original production. Uh, you came up with a new rhythm, you came up with a new bass and everybody's happy. And yes, that would be one way. One way. The other way was uh, a way of working which I figured out which worked better for myself. Imagine this, I go into the studio, I have my Sony F1 system with me on a Betamax with hi-fi tracks. I go into the studio and I whip up uh, the basic for the tracks, the basic rhythm track, so I open up all the drums, bass drum, snare, hi-hat, so make my rhythm thing. I push up uh, the, the bass line, and I really don't spend more than 10 minutes on that. Then I uh, listen to whatever is on the multi-track and I make the balance for, say, the, the top end of the track. The rhythm end being the bottom end of the track, I am now concentrating on the top half of this production. The, all the keys, all the strings, the vocals, the solos, the guitars, whatever. So, I spend a couple of hours on that, and then I mute everything that has to do with the rhythm part of this multitrack. So, I, I mute the drums, I mute the bass line. So, what is left is the top half of this production. Then I fire up the, the F1. I do a vocal take, I do an instrumental take, I do outtakes. And whilst I'm doing this out, these outtakes in digital on the Sony F1, I'm also recording the time code on one of the hi-fi tracks. Right. When I come home, I have mixes of the top half of whatever I'm working on. I have the time code on the hi-fi track, and now I can spend a week, I can spend seven days on just coming up with a rhythm track I can spend two weeks on a complete new rhythm track, which fits this production. And if I feel like it, I can delete everything because there is nobody watching over my shoulder. And I can start again until I have the feeling this works. I have the digital signal from the F1. Okay. I have everything running along through time code from my sequencer. And the F1 is a nifty machine because it's a, Analog digital digital analog converter, but those are actually completely separate. So we have this one box, and whilst I am playing one uh, Betamax tape, giving me a digital signal, I can have a second Betamax recorder using the AD converter. So I could could make digital mixes in my room, which used to be my bedroom. Right. <laughs> The magic bedroom. Talk about bedroom production work.
0: Bedroom production work. Yeah, I can. Before you know. it was even cool. Everyone. He was already a bedroom bedroom producer before he was even before it was cool to be in the bedroom working.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So now I have. I even have my my bedroom glasses on, so it makes it. Uh, anyway, uh, long story short, I figured out how I could take a digital mix from the studio add everything running along in real time and master it back to digital again in that same room. So when I did my remix, when I was done with my remix, it would still be uh, digital. You know, it, it hadn't been on tape. There was no hiss. there was no distortion, no uh, uh, degradation of quality. And the only thing I needed to do then is make the actual edits on tape and uh, so i did that on my revox which was properly aligned properly uh, calibrated so whatever left my home i knew i was absolutely confident that it was absolute studio quality and then a little later uh, akai came with a system where you could even um, edit digitally on uh, the dd1000 and then i was making productions i was making remixes and i was delivering them on that tape 100% digital no noise, no distortion, no anything. So uh, yeah, that's that's me having fun with all the equipment and uh, getting the best out of it.